Today is Palm Sunday, and my main text will be from, from Psalm 119. I think it would be important that we go to uh, the text that would be important for today was uh, Palm Sunday, Matthew 21, and it's this, this is discussed in all the Gospels, but um, I'd like to go to Matthew 21 for specifically for one word, and then and just talk through this a little bit, and then we'll get into Psalm 119, these two things do correlate. Matthew 21, look with me there. Triumphal entry is the title of it. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And in one week, that same crowd would turn and put him on a cross. And you would ask, or we would ask the question, How does that happen? That in one week, you turn from King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as Handel's Messiah says, to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And there are probably many answers we could give, but I would like to just give this answer as one of them, which is the same answer that we've got to remind ourselves as one day we say King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and then maybe by that evening we're more interested in our own um, rights and our own desires rather than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and I think it's because we miss verse 5 look at the verse 5 with me say to the daughter of Zion this is the prophet that says this behold your king is coming to you now I want you to take open your hymnal and I want you to flip to number 208 There are so many facets to the gospel. There are so many things that you can focus on with the character of God and the character of Christ. But one that I think is less popular in our society is that God is king and Christ is king. And we have used a term instead of saying king that is a theological term but one that in the King James is not even mentioned, and that's the word sovereign. God is sovereign. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is sovereign. But we've, we've, we've used that word in the context that is not what it means. 
we say, well, God is sovereign over all this. And we, that is true, a true statement, but what we mean by that is that God is going to use all that for good and glory. Well, that's actually the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of sovereignty would be that God is king and has all authority to rule over all things, including us. 208 in your hymnal. I think Isaac Watts got it right. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die, my King? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for sins that I have done he suffered on the tree? Question mark. Amazing pity, exclamation mark. Grace unknown, exclamation mark. And love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ the great, and this is the other aspect of the gospel that is oftentimes missed in this nation, the great redeemer died for man the creature's sin. This, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And then we sang the other great hymns of the face this morning on at the cross, at the cross, at Calvary. It's where my burden rolled away. Sin and stain was removed. These old hymns of the faith upon the cross. But we've got to remember on this Lord's Day and upon a day that we celebrate Palm Sunday that this coming week, much of the temptation will be, who is king in your life? That is much of the temptation. Because if you lose sight of that, and you're now in control of what you want to do with a moralistic view of the gospel, we're very quickly relegated to just a few trivial, hey, I want to look good in front of people, instead of my king has perished on the cross. And we get Isaac Watts' understanding of the great Redeemer. You see, he redeemed you from sin and death. And he also, by that work upon the cross, redeemed you from the, the sin of last week and the sin of this morning and last night. And he will use that for his glory. He does redeem things. Don't forget that. Now go to Psalm 119. This ties in. There's, as I said earlier, there's many ways we can approach Scripture. And I want to approach this one verse by verse this morning. And we will mention a few ways that they tie together. But I really want to get into the tone of this. What of the tone that David is speaking with. And I, I just want to give a word of recommendation as well for Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David. This is a lot of what I have gone through as I've been studying this. And there is something um, to be said for sitting down as you're reading through the Psalms with this right next to you. And read the Psalms and get into it and really dive and really seek what is, the, what is being said here. And after you spend a good amount of time by yourself with the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the scripture, then open up this and read through it. 
And the, one of the, the thing that you will understand is you, you read Psalm 119, 161 through 168 and you go, wow, that's some pretty good stuff. And then you read what this guy, Charles Spurgeon, gets out of it or many other, Matthew Henry, gets out of it and it just opens your eyes to a whole new understanding of how to view scripture. So I really, I really am um, convinced that one of the best ways to learn how to understand scripture deeper is to use these guys to teach you how to do it. And when I was teaching the boys Bible study a couple years ago, I was going to go through all the Psalms, 1 through 150. We skipped a few. I think I ended up stopping around the 50 mark. But the first um, probably 30 plus lessons that I did on Psalm by Psalm, I read this and then would almost uh, use his points as teaching points and speak. Well, by the time I got to the 30s and 40s, I could read the verse and then go to him and he was beginning through the Holy Spirit to teach me how to see scripture from the depth that Charles Spurgeon can teach it. Because you begin to see the nuances that you would miss and that he doesn't miss and many others like him. So I just want to encourage you, uh, if you don't have this Treasure of David, it's really pretty inexpensive to get a three-volume set or the one-volume set and use it. Um, but this is a great tool to help you really get and see scripture from a much deeper understanding, especially the Psalms. So I'm going to read once again Psalm 119, 161 through 68, and then we will pray as we begin. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace upon our lives today and the redemption that has been purchased for us. have been given freely to us. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to approach Scripture this morning not blind or deaf, but for those who have been saved, our eyes are open and our ears are open and can be, we can understand through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ in us. So I would ask and pray, Father, for grace now. I ask, Lord, that I might not in any way, shape, or form block or misdirect or miscommunicate the truth of your word, but that you might use me simply as a tool and that your word would bring forth fruit as the parable of the sower says, some a hundredfold, some tenfold, or that there might be fruit, whether small or great, there would be fruit, that by our fruits, others will see Christ, and that we will gain more fruit this morning in an understanding of your word through the study of your word. We thank you and praise you that you are our king, and we simply desire that you would be honored this morning and we might have the pleasure of serving you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. 
Many attribute Psalm 119 to the writing of David. You will see on many of the Psalms in your Bible as the heading, uh, specifically who wrote that Psalm. There's no heading, at least in my Bible, in Psalm 119, but many do attribute, including Charles Spurgeon, uh, the writing of Psalm 119 to David. And so if you, uh, if you can go to Psalm 119 with David's mindset Uh, you begin to see a few more things. And you will see that in verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. The prince or a prince or the king or the president or the government is there to punish those who do wrong and to protect those who do right. And here David is lamenting the fact that he as not only a believer in Christ, believer, a follower of God, but also royalty, though not yet, uh, or depending upon when he wrote this, potentially not yet, he would eventually become king, that others would persecute him and they have no cause. And there is great application here for us as Christians. You're, unless you're leading a a, a life that is continually breaking the law of the land, there has been throughout church history and there will be uh, now and in the future persecution upon Christians without cause. And we lament that and we cry out to God, why do we have such persecution without cause? Why do we not get a fair trial by those who are supposed to be protecting us? And there's two sides of this. One would be why, and the other would be that in this world today, you must expect this without cause persecution, without cause holding you or pushing you or afflicting you for no reason. We're the ones, Christians are often the ones who are supposed to, and we often do, we're supposed to anyway, keep the law and be good citizens, etc., and yet Christians are the ones persecuted without cause. And David, especially as a king, one that would become king if he was not at the point that he wrote this, really was lamenting because here he is saying, hey, you're just like I am. We're, we're supposed to be supporting one another, not getting persecution. But here, here is the way I would like to tie Matthew 21 and Psalm 119, 161, or 119, 161 through 168 together this morning is this verse, the second half. But my heart stands in awe of your words. Charles Spurgeon says we are not likely to be disheartened by persecution or driven by it into sin if the word of God continually has supreme power over our minds. So what really I think what you could say here is the psalmist is driving at is where are your fears and who are your idols and who have you placed as Authority in your life, or we could say as king of your life? This is really the question. Because if it's the prince that you fear, then you will not have your heart stand in awe of the word of God. 
because your heart, your heart is drawn away from the word of God and you're drawn to the word of whomever this may be. What, what, whatever you approach this sanctuary in this morning that is dominating the thought structure of your mind is oftentimes that which you are worshiping. I've been very busy the last month trying to finish a house remodel. And it has, John Willing, we, we, we're brothers in this one. We can talk about what it means to go through the stress of this. It has allowed me in the blessing of coming to church the way many of you do. And let me explain myself. When you're, when you're a pastor, you can come to church having spent all week preparing to worship God and lead people in worship. So it's much easier to come in mind-focused, ready. This is your job. This is what you get paid to do. But when that's not your paying job and you have the stress of the boss saying, hey, two days ago, you were supposed to get me such and such and so and so. The deadline's looming tomorrow. I have to go tomorrow and fire this person. I have the stress of going to have to go to this client and say, you haven't paid me yet. I've got to make this choice now. There's pressures that you all face that I've now gotten the ability to face. And I can't tell you the battle, especially last week, of sitting on that back room, having to fight with everything I could to focus my mind on worship because it was, I got to pick this paint color and I got to do this and tomorrow I got to do that and I got to do that and I got to do that because these people are doing this and this and this and I paid them that much money and they got, it's, it's, you've got to fight for this. But if that's what's dominating my mind, I'm not going to stand in awe of God's word. There's not going to be king of kings and lord of lords and wow, what a desire I would have to worship. We've got to continually fight to remove that which dominates causing us to fear. I would love to say it's just stress, but no, it's probably not. In biblical terms, it would be idolatry. Misplaced priorities is what I would like to call it, but really it's fear and idolatry. And this is what we've got to fight. Otherwise, we cannot say with the psalmist, my heart stands in awe of your words. And so if you then take, well, it's easier if the persecution is coming from without, but what about if it's coming from within? Princes persecute me without cause. How do you respond to that persecution? Do you find God's word even more in awe or do you then crumble under that and are weighed down to the point that you're unable to to get your heart and mind in gear and worship with the Lord? I'm just going to flow through these verses. Number 62, 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. These two are tied together. My heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. We're speaking from the terms of a, of a monarch. We're speaking in terms of a king. We're speaking in terms of a, of a ruler here that the word of God was of greater delight than a king out marching 
conquering lands comes upon a great spoil and the joy that is there of having won this battle. And we, in that battle, to see Christ as king and most worthy of our praise and and focus of our minds, if, if we persevere in that, we will come to Scripture with the delight of finding something that is of great worth. But, 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 this is the glorious thing. You don't, even if in your sin and failings to find God's word as of greater delight, you come to God's word one day having not spent time in it. Maybe today you spend time in the word and you haven't spent time in the word the last six days and you come to scripture and you haven't been battling like you should there is a redemptive quality and grace to the gospel in that God still will and can give you such a glorious spoil of the word. Think of the, think of the lepers with the, with the Syrian army, right? They, they just wander out to say, hey, look, you guys are gonna conquer us. We're starving to death. Would you all just kind of give us a little food help us a little bit and they wander into this thing and and, I mean the whole place is just empty of people and full of food and every kind of spoil imagined and that is oftentimes the way it is you you can at times just you're battling and then you see such witness because you're in the word but then at times you're not in the word and you're starving and you're simply going to the word saying God please would you nourish my soul and there's great spoil because the word of God never returns void. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. You see here the the need to fear God more than others because if you fear others more than God, your heart will not stand in awe of God's word. You will not rejoice at his word. You will struggle to find that great spoil. But if you fear God, the fear of God is, is one that I love the way Spurgeon says it here. The fear of God was, is not the kind of fear, meaning fear, which perfect love casts out, but of the sort which it nourishes. Which it nourishes. When we find our fear in God, rather than in fearing others, we find that rejoicing because that fear nourishes that perfect love that has been bestowed upon us by, by the Lord. 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Now, this, this, is a, this is a verse that speaks to the sanctification of the heart of the psalmist. Because go back with me to Psalm 119, verse 29. Flip there with me. Psalm 119, 29, just a short verse, but I think it's important to read it. My, my version, the scriptures, the English Standard Version reads, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Your version might read, remove from me lying or remove from me falsehood and graciously teach me your law. There's the, 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 here's the sanctification part of it in that the psalmist in 29 is asking God, would you do this? Because there's times in our, our lives when 
We don't want to let go of, of that sin. And we're asking, God, would you, would you do this in and of myself? Would you remove this? And he so graciously does because you see the sanctification process there in 119, 163. It's now changed from God, would you do this, to God has done this. And now, his, now he is saying this of his, own, of his own heart. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. It's now, it's, it's now his own. It's been graciously given to him by the Lord. He now hates and abhors falsehood. Now this hating and abhorring falsehood, but I love your law, um, is less of hating lying and cheating and deceit. It's more of hating and abhorring false teaching. Um, the Galatians got a great reprimand from David, I mean, from Paul, when Paul just really weighs in on him, on them in the first couple chapters of Galatians, saying, you, you've so quickly gone for another gospel. This is, the, this is the type of hate and abhorring that we are called to have. But I love your law. There is so much, uh, even throughout church history and even today, there's so much false teaching when it comes to the gospel. I would uh, commend to you uh, to go home and and in sometime this week to read a, an article that Al Mohler wrote on Tuesday, April 8th. Moralism is not the gospel, but many Christians think it is. I really think he, he hits the nail on the head. And that oftentimes we regu- regulate, um, relegate the gospel to simply good deeds. Let me read a few brief expert, excerpts from here. Nevertheless, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this. The belief that the gospel can can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Now, that's different from saying the gospel is uh, what you get when you do good works. Uh, Not faith-based, but good works-based. And we would think of um, the Catholic Church. This would be, we've got Christ, but now we can, it's along the same line to share a, a hair or a shade slightly less gray in that we're now saying all we have to do is not do good works, but we just have to improve our behavior. The seduction, quoting Moeller, of moralism is the essence of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we can actually gain all the approval we need by our behavior. Now, can you gain any more approval from God? No, you cannot gain any more approval from God. Can you please God? Yes, Can you please him and give him more glory? Yes. Can you gain any more approval? No. Because there's nothing in you that can gain approval from God outside of Christ. In Christ alone. This is why Paul harped in Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. Continuing the quote here, of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. You hear this? We must negotiate a moral code that defines, this would be a false teaching, that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. So you can do this, you can't do this, but you can kind of bend around and, and catch this here. 
Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely beyond scandal. Most moralists would not claim to be beyond sin, without sin, but merely beyond scandal. That is considered sufficient. And the article goes on, and I would commend it to you. All that to say is, that is a false teaching, and it is within the Church of America, and it very easily can be within our own minds in this church, in thinking, in the pursuit of holiness, which is part of the gospel and something you are called to do, you simply relegate it to thinking, if I only do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, I'll be a better Christian. Well, you, will, you may be a more holy Christian, but if you approach it with that heart attitude, that's false gospel. Because you can't do that without Christ, and you're doing it for yourself in order to look better before God, which you can't. Christ alone did that for you. You do it, pursuit of holiness, in order that you might please him and glorify him out of love for him, but not in order to gain any more acceptance with him. There'd be other false teachings. For instance, there, we had, if you were in first, like the egg and the jug um, presentation, which is not a false teaching. I'm not going there on that. What I'm, what I'm saying is, oftentimes we, uh, or, or the scripture, not scripture, the Christians in the church would say, you get stuck in the jug and you pop out. And that is true. Christ brings us out of, of sin or redeems us from getting ourselves where we shouldn't be and, and breathes upon us, grants us repentance. We come back to Christ or for the first time to Christ. But oftentimes where we fall short is thinking you've now come out of the mold of the world and you're now in a whole nother constrained box that you can't do anything. Now, what I'm not saying is you can do everything. But the gospel is freedom from sin and death. And this is desperately needed in our culture today because you have a world that says, I have to live with my girlfriend. I have to, I'm just, I have to obey my 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 drawing, and I'm going to love this other man or I'm going to have a woman-to-woman relationship. I have to abort my baby. You don't understand the circumstances. I have to fudge on this or do that. because I just, no, 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 no. You don't have to. That's the glorious part of the gospel. You're free to not give in to your selfish and sinful motives. You're free to guy the power of Christ to do that which glorifies him. What, that is so needed for the homosexuality, homosexuality movement of today or the sexual movement of today of going to a person that's thinking on that and saying, you're not, you're not, you're free in Christ to not do that. You're free now to do that which is, you've been designed to do to give glory to God. No, you're not free to sin. No, you're not free to give in to your own selfish desires. But those weren't the best for you anyway, and that's not what you're designed for. You're free to do all that which you've been designed to do in Christ, which is to give glory to him. And there are so many others, false teaching after false teaching after false teaching, that we must hate and abhor and Oftentimes, the Church of America gets into these false teachings because we don't love the Word and we're not in it and we don't read it. And we just kind of take out of it what we like what it says, but we don't read all of it and get the whole context of Scripture. And then we're, we raise up a lot of these false teachings because we haven't been in the Word and seen all that's there. 
we're not loving the law as we should. There, there is a, uh, there was a, a statement here by Thomas Manton. I'm sorry, uh, Abram, Thomas Manton says, slight hatred of a sinful course is not sufficient to guard us against it. So if, you, if, you don't wanna, if we don't want to go down a false road, uh, we can't just think, well, you know, that's bad. There has to be a, a hatred. And we think, well, hatred's bad too. I love what Abram Wright in the context of this verse says. Sin seemeth to have its name from the Hebrew word sana, to hate. The word here used because it is most of all to be hated as the greatest evil. We're to, we're to hate sin as the greatest evil. As that which setteth us, setteth us farthest from God the greatest good. Now notice, here's what I want you to get from this quote. None can hate it, none can hate sin, but those that love the law of God. For all hatred comes from love. All hatred comes from love. Well, we think, well, no, those two are opposed. No, uh uh-uh. Whatever you love is going to cause you to hate something over here. If you love yourself, you will probably hate your neighbor. Well, we'd like to say, no, 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 no. I don't hate my neighbor. I just dislike him. No, you, whatever you find your greatest love in is what you will find the opposite will be your hate. So if we don't hate falsehood, then we've got to be careful in saying, well, I love God's law, but you know, that's okay over here. No, no, no. If you love something, it will drive you to hatred the opposite way. So if we love God's law and the truth that is there, we will hate anything that is opposed to that. And we certainly won't hate it in the way that the world hates it and remove ourselves from it. No, we will take the remedy for that falsehood, which is the truth of scripture, to the hate, to that, to change it to into love for God. I think Abram Wright really has it correct here. All hatred comes from love. God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. Why? Because he hates all that is, a, that is not of himself, all that is not perfect, all that is sin. Do we hate, what do you hate? What, do, what disgusts you? because of love for something else. That may be a good barometer to find out how well we're doing with our love for God. Do we hate sin? And hate it enough that we don't just leave it there, but we take the remedy to it. 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. I, when I prayed earlier, I, giving thought to this, seven times a day is a perfect number, seven times this striving for, for perfection in Christ, that is part of the gospel, that we are to strive to be like him. And so you are seeking to, in the strength of Christ, to be holy seven times a day, seeking to do it as well as you can. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Oftentimes, we praise him once a day one day of seven days rather than, or once a day of seven days rather than praising him seven times per day per seven days. The scriptures hark on numbers. You see, God, uh, Jesus says, don't just forgive him once, forgive him 70 times seven. Well, we are to seek to praise the Lord. That should be that which comes out of our mouth. If it's not coming out of your mouth, it's not in your heart it will overflow and come out. 
And so if it's not coming out, you can't just go and say, well, I'm going to then put together a, a list of, uh, of, of things that you're just going to, no, it's got to be in the heart first. But if it's in your heart and you're struggling to fight and you're wanting to praise the Lord, it's your, it is your heart's desire to do so. There is a time to discipline yourself. Maybe you set the, the alarm on your iPhone to seven times a day to help you. There, there is that aspect of that. But there's not also the other side, which would be the legalistic, which just say, if I'm going to praise the Lord seven times a day and I'm going to earn my favor, and that's more of the gospel than the heart aspect, that, that's a false teaching. So we want to come through... Uh, it has to come through the heart, which you see in the previous verses, loving the Lord, rejoicing at his word, all of his words, hating falsehood. If that is the cry of your heart, there will be praise that will come forth. So is there, is there praise coming from your mouth? If there is not, then check your heart. I praise you for your righteous rules. 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. There is a, a peace that passes all understanding and it does come when we are walking in right fellowship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, with Christ the Son. That will come through the, the love of the law. There is not going to be peace or a love for the law or that which will keep you from stumbling unless there is uh, salvation. And you will not love the law of God unless there has been a heart transformation done by the work of the Spirit. And you're not loving the law. You're loving the law because you understand that it is not limiting your freedom. It has been used by God to purchase your freedom because you were unable to keep it. And Christ has now bought it. And in that buying of your redeeming his through his redeeming blood in that buying of your salvation you, you you now have that peace and that has directs you back to that law not as a means of salvation but as a as a a schoolmaster and a hope and a a teacher to help you know how to best continue in that peaceful walk of obeying the lord nothing can make them stumble you certainly will stumble in life but we know that those who walk with him we see this in the Psalms he holds us by our hand we may fall we may stumble but we will not fall headlong because he he pulls us which we've spoken of before 166 is touching on some things here I hope for your salvation O Lord and I do your commandments so if you just split the verse in half it's not correct and if you looked at it from the other direction it's not correct either is it right to hope for your salvation, O Lord? Yes, but you can't just stop there. Is it right to just do the commandments of the Lord? Yes, but you cannot just stop there. They have to be tied together. My hope is not in salvation by my, by my keeping the commandments. My hope is in salvation by the work of Christ, and because of that, I do the commandments. We see this in James, that faith without works is sin. They have to be together. So you can't just go out and do a bunch of good things and gain salvation, nor can you just sit at home on the couch and not do anything because there has to be those two tied together. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Christ 
is the one who saved us. That is where we find our hope. But then out of that hope, we then go to work. And I think there's the, those who find, uh, I think the point can be made that those who find less hope in their good works will do more good works. Because if you're not uh, finding your hope in doing good works, but you're finding your hope in the salvation of Christ, uh, that will naturally, through the heart as it always does, lead to more that others would say would be, and God would say that would be good works. But you're not, you're not putting your hope and your faith on them, and you're not also sitting there going, yes, I walked the old lady across the street, I bought the cookies from the Girl Scouts, I, you know, I did all these things. No, no. You're sitting there saying, how can I honor the Lord? And that will naturally lead to a life that is honoring to Him. 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. This is tied to 168, so I'll go ahead and read it. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Uh, there's the internal, there's the external. My, my soul internally keeps your testimonies. And because you love them internally exceedingly, 168, it comes out in practical outworkings where others can see. I keep, it, there's the, the practical outworking. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. There goes back to the, the, the king of kings realizing that he is ruling over us and our ways are laid out before him. This is, it's a necessity. Young people, you've got to listen to this. Hear me on this. It is much easier to do verse 168 than it is 167. But you will, you will come to a day when you will stand, whether it's by yourself somewhere, whether it's in a church, whether it's driving through, down the road in the car, where you will come to the realization if you're, only working 168, that 167 is not true in your life. And there will be that day. And as we've spoken of last week with, with Jacob and regrets to his past, this is not what you desire. This is not what you desire, to live out a life that looks good to others and is empty within. You will have regrets. He, may, he will and can redeem those things, but that is not a desire you should have. Continually check your heart. Why? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I mention that? And a good test is when no one else is around, what do you think about? Maybe not even what you do, but what do you think about? Because if you're believing a, a moralistic gospel, it's going to be I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do when everybody's around, but I'm going to do it differently when no one's watching because there's not a, co a code I'm being held to. Well, that's an understanding, a misunderstanding of 168, which, way, which would be all my ways, all your ways are before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He sees all of that. He sees your heart and he, he sits there and he says, oh, Cody, do you really think you're fooling me by saying what you're supposed to say and doing what you're not? Or, oh, Beecher, or, oh, Josh, or all young men, young ladies, listen to this. It's imperative for your soul that we understand that it has to come my soul. Does your soul, does your heart, does the internal nature of your soul keep and desire and love the testimonies, the word of God, so much so that it then pours out? Or you, and this is always the fight, are we 
reversing it from the other way, putting 168 first and saying, I'm going to keep it all here. And I would exhort you to keep the precepts and testimonies of the Lord. And there will be times in your life when you may keep them and internally you're struggling with not keeping them. I'll go all day long with you on that one to fight to do that. And we're right with you on that. But it can't just be external and absolutely no internal. There can be the battle going on. But don't give in to just no internal and all external. It must be the cry of our heart that we would love the, the word and love because of the word God exceedingly over all, above all else. So this, this, is, the, this is really in 161 through 168, really boil it all down to the very basis. I really think what's being shown here is as, as the king or as going to be the king here, the psalmist He's, he's, he's battling or he's now declaring that fear of God and love of the word of God there because of the fear of God is that which drives him above the fear or idols of his life. And that's really the question for us in 161 through 168. Is who is the king? And in one week, if the Jews could take it from the king of the Jews and notice Pilate, we, we read it in the responsive reading there. Pilate put up on the cross the king of the Jews. He saw it. Will we see it? That he is still king of kings and lord of lords. And, and we are in subject to him. And we hate those phrases in the culture of America today that we would ever be subject to anyone. But he is... You cannot describe the difference between subjection to a perfect, holy, righteous, King of kings, Lord of lords, redeeming God, gracious, loving, and yet just and righteous, and the boss that you must be subjected to, or the imperfect husbands that wives often we are always subjected to. And yet you're, you're to look at Scripture and see what, how delightful it is that we might be and subject to the king. Let's pray. Father, I would, I would simply pray that by means of practical application today that we, we would go and call to mind who you are and what we are. And you would give us eyes to see in biblical terms the fears, the idols that are keeping us from true worship, that are keeping us from having this testimony of the psalmist, that are, that have that we have allowed it, that we have allowed to mold us into its conformity, not the conformity to Christ, but the conformity of, of this, of the world, of the, of the idol, of the fear. And I pray, Lord, for freedom from those things. Help us in our unbelief, understanding and believing 
that you are exceedingly good above the fears and idols and worries and stresses of our life and yet help our unbelief that we might walk that out privately, internally. Father, I would pray that in our pursuit of holiness, in our desire to honor you, we would be ever encouraged and strengthened with the understanding that in that pursuit, as we come short, as we fail, you have never failed. You will never fail. And that glorious, blood-bought relationship that we have with you is not built upon how well we do, but it was built upon how well your son did, which was perfect. Father, we rejoice at this coming week at having an opportunity to reflect and be reminded of the, the suffering that your son went through in the last days of his life. The physical suffering, the, the emotional and spiritual and mental suffering, the difficulty as perfectly God and yet fully man of riding down the street and hearing you praised and yet knowing that in a week they would spit on him and hit him and mock him and ultimately kill him. And Father, we would have been in probably both crowds, praising you in one day, as we often do even now, and mocking you the next. And yet even knowing that, you purchased our salvation. We thank you, Father. And simply plead and ask that you might give us the privilege of walking from this place today, of talking with one another in the coming lunch hour in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to you and living out a life that is glory-giving to the one who deserves it most. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.